It says in verse 1, And again he entered Capernaum, and after some days he was heard that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no one Okay. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to go a little quiet here to make sure. And again. He entered Capernaum, and after some days it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Then one extra verse with this, verse 13, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. A lot of different things going on in this one. I absolutely love this story out of Mark. Now, what I want to start out with, though, is this. Take a look at verse 2. It says, and he preached the word to them. In verse 13, it says that he taught them. Please note the emphasis of Jesus' earthly ministry on preaching and teaching. We have, we have lost that in Christianity today. We've made the emphasis today this idea of almost a show. This idea of almost entertainment. I was listening to a pastor speak recently, and he was talking about an outreach they were doing. And he said this, and it really kind of hit me. And I, and I don't know his heart, and I don't want to judge that heart. But he said, we just want people to have fun. And I get that. You want people to have fun, but you want people to hear the word of God. That's the emphasis. Because people that are having fun might still go to hell. And that's not the point of it. I was talking to someone recently, and we were just getting a chance to witness to her a little bit, and she talked about how she really felt that her job in life was to make people happy. Once again, that's great. I like making people happy. But happy people still die and go to hell. What matters most is making sure they understand who Jesus Christ is and preaching and teaching that. And so you see this emphasis from Christ, and this emphasis is verse 2, verse 13. He's going to preach the word to them. He's going to teach them. This is repeated throughout the Gospels all the time. In fact, in the book of Mark, there's ten references to him teaching. It says in the book of Mark that he was daily teaching. This is what Jesus did. We have a tendency to focus on things like this. Healing paralytics. We have a tendency to focus on feeding the 5,000, 4,000, walking on water, raising the dead. Yes, amen. But what Jesus did day in and day out was take what we would call the Old Testament and teach them God's word. I think that is so vitally important. Please remember what Romans ten seventeen says. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. So if you want to grow in your faith, because it says in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. So God, I want to please you, and the way I please you is by having more faith in you. How am I going to have more faith in you? By being in God's word. 
2 Timothy 3 says this, that we should be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work from God's word. God's word completes us. It equips us for what God wants us to do. And just no matter what you're going through in life, God's word. If you came here tonight and you're feeling dry spiritually, guess what? The Bible says that God's word is refreshing water. That will refresh you. If you came here tonight and you're utterly confused, God's word says it's a lamp unto your feet. If you came here tonight and you are just discouraged, God's word says it uplifts you and encourages you. This is what the word of God does. When we understand this, when we understand what Isaiah 55 says, that God's word does not return void, we would look at these passages and say, well, then why would I want to not be preaching the word? Why would I not want to be teaching the word? And really making an emphasis of that. Because that's where people are really going to grow in their walk in relationship with Christ. Now, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? In the 21st century, we've kind of defined our own idea A lot of people say what we do out here is teaching, this verse by verse. And preaching is maybe you get a topic and you just kind of expound on the topic. The Bible doesn't go into that type of detail. Preaching, according to the Greek, is this. It means speaking. So when you're preaching the word, you're talking about it. Now, when it says teaching in verse 13, it carries the idea of instructing. Both good. And I think in a typical message that we do out here, there's times of teaching, according to the Bible, instructing. Hey, this is how you live the life. And then there's times of preaching, speaking. Hey, this is what this verse means. This is how it applies to us. This is the depth that we can get out of this. So you see Jesus at time preaching. You see Jesus at time teaching. And I want to encourage you. Boy, get in the word. You will be blessed. I cannot stress to you enough. The blessing you will get out of being in God's word. Jesus set the example of it. And you see him doing it in his earthly ministry. And you will be blessed by it. So now, we've laid this foundation. That he is here. He's teaching. He's preaching. So many people. You can't even get into the house. You can't even get near the door. Verse 2. And you got these five guys. Four of them are bringing their paralytic friend. And they are desperate. To get him to Jesus Christ. Absolutely desperate. I like that. I've done this before in the past where maybe there's a group of us guys that all know the same person that's not saved. And we've gone to Mark chapter 2 and we said, we need to be those four guys carrying this person to Christ. So we're going to get together and we're going to pray for this guy on a regular basis. There's been times that we've said, we're all going to stop what we're doing and at noon pray for this situation. And if you've got a group of people that has a real heart for somebody that's really struggling, I encourage you to do that. Pick a day, pick a time, send out a group text and say, hey, listen, everybody at noon, we're going to stop and pray for this situation. It reminds me a lot of the four friends taking the paralytic to Jesus. We're going to pray and we're going to give this person over to the Lord. Now, they come in and they can't get in. So they have to climb on top of the roof. A lot of these houses had stairs out back, and these roofs were like a, a, a thatch roof, a layered roof, not like the roofs we have today where you'd have to bust through plywood and drywall, not like that. They could literally remove the different layers. I'm not an expert on Greek in any way whatsoever, but it says in verse 4 that they've broken through. One commentator I was reading on this said, you don't understand how almost um, violent this was. They were busting through the roof. Now, I'm just trying to imagine. Now, we've had services out here. We've had to set up chairs. But we've never had it where somebody so desperately wanted to come in that I see a hole coming through the roof. I doubt that would ever happen. But can you imagine being in the midst of that? Jesus is teaching. I would love to know what he was preaching on. And all of a sudden, you hear the rustling going on. Next thing you know, a little bit of dirt and dust is falling through. Then a little bit of sunlight's peeking through. 
And the next thing you know, there's a guy being lowered down by ropes to get to Jesus. When I say that's a desperation, I don't mean that as an insult. I see that almost as a passion. They were so desperate for their friend to come to know who Jesus Christ was. We've got to get this guy to Christ. Jesus can take care of this. They know that he can heal. They know that he can move. They know that he can do this. So they lower him down. Verse 5, Jesus sees their faith. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine how disappointed they were? They didn't want forgiveness. They wanted healing. You ever notice that sometimes that's what we do? We have an unsaved loved one that is going through a very difficult time. And we're like, oh, I really need to pray for them. So we pray that things work out in their life. Yeah, I don't really care if things work out in their life. They need to get saved. That's the most important thing. This is, this is what Jesus did. And sometimes it comes across the wrong way. But this is the way he handles things. Remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him at night. Nicodemus starts out by buttering him up. Jesus, you're an amazing teacher. Everybody knows you're an amazing teacher. We know you're great. Next verse, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to get born again. Let's just cut right to the chase. You've got to get born again. Woman at the well. Hey, which of your six, seven husbands do you want to talk about? Let's just cut right to the chase here. Rich young ruler comes down to Jesus, gets down on his knees in front of Christ. What must I do to be saved? Jesus says, go sell everything. He just gets right to the point. Now, you've got to be prayed up, spirit-led, and making sure you're presenting that in love. We have this tendency, I think, a lot of times today is where our idea of presenting the gospel is, let's just mention God one time. And then maybe a week later when we talk to him again, let's just mention this, let's just mention that. Christ says, listen, the most important thing is is whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell. So I see the faith, I see what they're doing in verse 5. Son, your sins are forgiven you. That's the most important thing. So since that's the most important thing, let's just get right to it. I like that. When you have this eternal mindset, when you realize every single individual you run into is spending eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, it changes every conversation you have with them. Because you realize, I have a spiritual responsibility to let my ears be open to the Holy Spirit saying, Lord, are you going to lead me to do this? I got a haircut. I know you really don't care, but I got a haircut. (laughs) Monday. There's no point. I just wanted to tell you. Now, I got a haircut Monday, and I'm sitting there waiting for the person. And the Lord has always opened up so many doors getting a haircut. Because you're, just, you're there for whatever time it is, 15, 20 minutes, and you've got some time to talk. So I'm waiting for the person to get done. And, I, and I'm not going to lie. I'm listening to the gal that's going to cut my hair. And as I'm listening to this, um, I, I just hear her. Hear the way she's communicating. Hear the way she's talking. Hear the way she's doing stuff. And I sat there and I thought, I don't want to talk to her. I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm, this, is, I'm not, this is not like a joke. I'm really serious. Like, I just, I was hoping for a different personality, whatever. So I, I get in the chair and you're like, hey, what are you doing? You know, just, you make the classic small talk. And she, I said, what were you doing? I said, well, I was, in, I was in town for a hospital visit. Oh, something, you know, something wrong. I said, no, no, I, I'm a pastor. And so I was visiting and, you know, trying to represent the love of Jesus and kind of really not going anywhere with that. And, and so something always comes up about hair. You know, how do you want it done? I always say, I don't care. I just say, my wife says I look homeless. She says I need a haircut. And I always say this, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, it doesn't matter. It's going to grow back. 
And so she goes, so really nothing. You know what I mean? I'm throwing out my little fishing hook. Nothing, no bites. So we're talking about her. And um, just, you can fill in the blanks. Her life is, is not living a God-glorifying life. That's just the way it is. There's nothing that's really redeeming about this life in any way whatsoever. And so the subject just kind of comes up of, oh, where are your pastor at? I said, Hamler. And I said, I'm sure you don't know it. She thought I said Hamilton. Or thought, so she thought about Cincinnati. And I said, no, Hamler, nothing. Just, just nothing here. Finally, subject comes up. I said, oh, Henry County. She goes, oh, Henry County. She goes, my uh, boyfriend uh, works in Henry County. I said, oh, where? Napoleon. Oh, okay, where at? She says the name of the company. The guy that owns the company comes out to this church. So I'm like, oh. I said, I know his boss. She goes, you do? I said, yeah. So now all of a sudden, then now she stops and she says, I think you were supposed to be here for a reason. And next thing you know, it's this amazing conversation. And we're talking about God. And we're talking about Jesus Christ and heaven and hell and sins. And we get done. I said, hey, can I pray with you? And we prayed right there. And it's just all of a sudden it comes together. Now, why does it come together? And that's why I started the story off with I didn't want to. It doesn't come together because I'm good. It doesn't come together necessarily because I was even this great spirit led. It comes together because, you know what, Lord, you told me to be obedient. I'm going to be obedient. And I'm not going to let things get in the way because if you're opening a door, I'll take it. My heart may not be right there. My motives may not be right. But, Lord, if I care about souls, I look at these four people and it's like, oh, we can't get paralytic Fred in. Oh, we can't get paralytic Fred through the door. Okay, let's just go home. Somebody had to stop and say, hey, Let's go through the roof. Somebody had to. And I just wonder, how often as Christians do we do what I was going to do Monday, just give up? Lord, I was willing. This is not working out. You realize, wait a second, let's go through the roof. Well, we can't go through the roof. Why not? Jesus is down there. Our friend is here. This may be our one chance. I'm going through the roof. You have one chance sometimes talking to people. You may never see them again. Why not take the chance? Are you really that concerned of what they think about you? You may never see them again. I want to be able to stand before the Lord just like Paul did in the book of Acts and said, I'm guilty of the blood of no man. That, Lord, when you said share, I shared. Lord, when you said open your mouth, I opened your mouth. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing and obedient to do it. Sometimes my heart isn't the greatest about it. Sometimes my motives may not be the pure, but, Lord, I want to be obedient. And when I get done, it's like, Lord, now I see why. So I'm just telling you right now, if you've got something that's on your heart and the door is shut, you can't get there, maybe you need to go through the roof. Think outside the box and say, Lord, if you're opening a door, I'm going to take it. I'm going to go with it, and I trust you. I'm going to uncover the roof. I'm going to violently break through it by force because I'm going to get my friend to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to throw in one other point in here I think is really neat. In verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the collective, their faith. Johnny Erickson Tata has a real neat story about this, and those that may be familiar with her, they know you know she's paralyzed um, from the neck down. We support, uh, you know, James Travis does a lot with the Johnny and Friends, and we support that wonderful ministry there to represent Jesus Christ. But she told the story here about how when she would go to these speaking engagements, and here she is paralyzed from the neck down, and she would talk about Jesus and salvation, how great God is. She says that without fail, almost after every big conference, someone comes up to her and tells her, if you had faith, you'd be healed. And it used to frustrate her. She said, then she read in Mark chapter 2, where it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. So now she says, no, if you had faith, I'd be healed. What a neat thing here to see the collective power of faith. Please don't take this the wrong way. 
That if we all just pray enough, and we all just have faith enough, we can make God do whatever we want him to do. That's not what we're saying in any way whatsoever. We're saying that there is a power here of people coming together in faith to say, I just need to get my friend to Jesus and I'm breaking through the roof. I think we've lost this, as it says in the book of James, the powerful, fervent, faithful prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I think sometimes when our prayers come, we have this tendency to forget the power that we can tap into in Romans 8 or that we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I see these guys like, yeah, let's get them to Christ. Now, once again, it goes back to the first point, though. Aren't they a little disappointed? Your sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. We've already established the point that Jesus likes to take care of the most important problem first. That is, are you going to heaven or hell? But they wanted this guy healed. Healed physically. Now, before we get to what happens, you see a little bit of mumbling and grumbling in verses 6 and 7. Reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Please remember, if you're here tonight and you're involved in any type of ministry, any type of ministry, there's going to be backlash against what you do. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. I got this little rule that I use in the back of my head. That almost after every message, almost anything I do as a pastor out of here, 25% love it, 25% hate it, and 50% don't even remember it. That's just the way it is. Everybody analyzes. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's willing to share their opinion. Here Jesus just forgave the sins, and there's going to be mumbling and grumbling. So you come out and you share your heart in a ministry and God just blesses it. There's going to be somebody waiting to say something negative about it. Remember when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. What's waiting for him at the bottom? The demon-possessed child. You're going to have mountaintop experiences with the Lord and enjoy him. It's wonderful. But just remember, there's going to be demon-possessed children waiting at the bottom of it. Some of them may be your own demon-possessed children, but they're going to be waiting there for you. They're mumbling, they're grumbling. Verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? That should answer your question. Who can? God alone. Verse 8, Jesus perceives this. Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven to you, or say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go to your house. The second miracle confirmed the first. Now, just think about this for a second, and and don't get mad at me. If somebody comes up, and I can say to them, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you can get upset about that. You can say James shouldn't say that. James doesn't have the power to do that. Here's the problem with that. You can't disprove that I can't forgive someone's sins. And I'm not trying to talk theologically here that I can say your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. I'm saying that if somebody wants to walk around saying, hey, I can forgive your sins, you can't disprove it. No, 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 you can't. How can you say no? I have the power to forgive sins. You can't disprove that. So Jesus says, you know what? I'll do the second miracle to prove that I have power to do the first miracle. Because the second miracle takes physical evidence. The second miracle, right then and there, you're put on the spot to say, can you do it? And guess what? Jesus does it. And you've heard me teach on these miracles before. Verse 12, immediately arose, took up the bed. I I can't stress to you enough the immediate part of that. We don't know for sure how long this man had been paralyzed. 
Some of the places in the Bible, you know, other stories were guys that were lame for 38 years. If you've ever been to a nursing home, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the atrophy of legs. The legs just, there's no longer muscle. There's no longer muscle tone. And to think that this person could immediately rise up and walk, I believe it's in the book of Acts account where it says that he rose up and leapt. That's getting leg muscle pretty quick, folks. There is no six to eight weeks of physical therapy. It is just immediate healing right then and there. That's what makes this so absolutely amazing. So now, Jesus does the second miracle to confirm the first miracle. Look at the response of this, 12. All were amazed, glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Please always remember the purpose of a miracle is no explanation but God. Please remember, all glory goes to God. I've seen a lot of videos online, a lot of TV things, or there's a lot of neat miracles, and I'm telling you right now, all the glory is not going to God. Just be careful of that. The purpose of a miracle is no explanation but God, and all the glory goes to God. That is what's so vitally important. One last point about this before we kind of open this up for questions. Take a look at 10, that phrase, son of man. Jesus had three phrases he liked to call himself in the Bible. He liked to call himself the son of God, the son of David, and the son of man. Son of God pointed towards his deity. It's pretty straightforward there. Son of David pointed towards his idea of being Jewish, the Messiah. Son of man, that was his favorite title for himself. Favorite title comes from Daniel 7. And it points to the idea of him being earthly mission. That he's a man. Now, you and I look at each other and we say, this isn't that big a deal to be a man. God became man. That's amazing. It says in the book of John that he visited us. He came down to us. So son of God, yeah, I I get that. He's deity. He's God. Son of David, I get that. He has to be Jewish. Son of man, he chose for 33 years to walk as I've walked, breathe the air I breathe, eat food, live, act, etc. The only difference is he did it without sin. And so therefore, according to Hebrews, I have a high priest that can relate to me and I can go to him in times of trouble. So Jesus' favorite term is son of man to say, listen, I am one with you, an earthly mission with you. I absolutely love that. So what a great story here. And you see all the different points of this. Just some final ones before we get to the next, because I want to do uh, 13 through 17 tonight as well. If you know somebody who is paralyzed by sin... Get your friends together and take them to Jesus. Pick a day, pick a time, and we're going to pray for this guy, this gal, every day or every week at this time. It's a wonderful thing. And it's, you don't have to go through roofs. You can just say this is what we're going to do. Monday at noon, we're going to stop what we're doing. I'm going to set an alarm on my phone, and I'm going to pray for this person. And I'm going to know that there's three, four other guys or gals praying with me, and we're all taking this guy to Jesus. Maybe it's a marriage that's in trouble. Maybe it's a person that's not saved. Maybe it's someone that's going backwards instead of forwards. I think it's a wonderful time to say, Lord, we're taking this person, and we're giving to you in faith, knowing and trusting that you're moving and working. All right, we're going to get to the 13 through 17 here, but any quick questions about anything before we go on? All right, Mark. Right. That was the second thing that took place. And sometimes I think 
Like we established there with Nicodemus in John 3, what's cut to the point, you've got to be saved. Um, that, that's what it is. And so often, I think, once again, we, we get this mindset of doing X, Y, or Z, and those things carry good. Don't get me wrong. There's a good that comes out of it. But what matters most is, does this person know where they're going when they die through Christ? Sin is this problem we have, we have to deal with. Remember, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for my sins. He did not come so I could have a better life. He came to save my life. And I think sometimes we have watered down the gospel message to this idea of Jesus just loves you and he wants you to have a really good life. Yes, Jesus does love me and he does want me to have a good life by being born again and saved in him. And that's how I'm going to have the best life. And I just think back to John 10.10, where it talks about the good shepherd has come to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. And that's going to come through forgiveness of sins. Anybody else got any other questions here before we move on? Okay. All right, let's talk about Matthew, verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi is also known as Matthew in the other gospel accounts. You can use the names interchangeably there. Please note once again in verse 13 the idea of teaching them. Teaching them. Jesus did use other things. He did feed the 5,000. He did feed the 4,000. But his main emphasis was going to be teaching. And that's what you see what's happening now. Uh, Verse 14. That's like the best altar call of all time. Follow me. Two words. Two words. Now, we're assuming here that Matthew had probably heard about what Jesus was doing. Obviously, Jesus was very famous in this Capernaum area around the Sea of Galilee. I think we could probably assume that Matthew had heard him teach before, maybe has seen things, heard about him. The Lord had been stirring on his heart. I know for me, if I've ever had the blessed opportunity of getting a chance to share Christ with somebody and they get saved, it's not because I shared it with them. It's because people have been praying for them for possibly years, decades before. Seeds have been planted for years, decades before. You've got to remember what it says in Corinthians. Some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. So something had been happening in Matthew's life. That's my assumption with that. I'm just going to be careful because we don't want to assume too much here. But Jesus comes by and says, follow me. He arose and he followed him. I love this altar call. I, I don't want to pick on altar calls. I really don't. A lot of times you see people do the altar call. I got saved by an altar call. That was everybody close your eyes, look down, and raise your hand if you want to get saved. I got saved that way. But what I see Jesus doing a lot here in altar calls is this. Hey, you want a relationship with me? Follow me. Leave your nets. Follow me. Leave your dad. Follow me. Leave your tax collecting. Follow me. And you see what Jesus is saying here. To follow him means to let go of the old. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
And I think sometimes, once again, we water down the gospel to this idea of, hey, listen, Jesus is not the most important thing in your life right now. So can you kick Jesus Christ up to 51% of everything? And you are then set. And the more I study the Bible, the more I realize this idea of what did Jesus ask for? Everything. (laughs) You know, we talked on Sunday about Caleb in the Old Testament who wholly followed the Lord. We talked about how Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. He wants everything. So Matthew, Levi, follow. And that's exactly what he does. He leaves behind his very lucrative job, being a tax collector. A little bit of background here on tax collectors. Tax collectors were absolutely hated back in Bible times because they were mostly here Jews collecting taxes from their brethren, the Jews, to pay off Rome, this power that was in control over them. They were hated. They were despised. So much so that according to Jewish rules, this is not in the Bible, this is the Jewish rules of the time, time, tax collectors weren't allowed to be a witness in court. And some places even excommunicated you from the synagogue if you were a tax collector. So why would these Jews choose to be a tax collector? Because you made a lot of money. A lot of money. It wasn't uncommon for tax collectors to get a couple Roman soldiers to be their buddies. So therefore, once again, if you owed $10 in taxes, the tax collector would show up at the house and say, Hey, you owe me 20 And he would stop and say, No, I owe you 10 He goes, Nope, you owe me 20 And he's got two Roman soldiers there telling you that you owe him 20 So he takes the 20 he keeps 5 he gives 250 to each of the soldiers, and he goes on to the next house. And what would happen is they would kind of bid out these jobs. Romans say, we need X amount of dollars from this geographical area. So the tax collector would then pay for that money up front, get the job, and then whatever he made over that, he got to keep himself. And that's why then he just kept collecting more and more and more. You know the story of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and he was taking so much, and he was so rich that he had gave so much back after he got saved. So you see here, Matthew, follow me, And he arose and followed him. Followed him. Now we know from Luke's account of the same story that Matthew then went and had a party for him. Matthew invited all of his friends and says, you got to come meet Jesus. I've always liked Matthew. Isn't this what should happen? You get saved. You start following Christ. The next thing you want to do is have everybody you know follow Christ. See, when you have been touched by the gospel, you want other people to know the gospel. It really used to bug me when I used to run into people that were Christians, but they had no desire to go out and tell anybody about being a Christian. And then I realized, they taught at a pastor's conference, it really hit me, that when you're really touched by the gospel, you want to share the gospel. It's like, wow, Lord, I pray that these people really know the gospel, because I can remember there's many years in my life where I got saved, and yeah, I loved the Lord, I loved church, I loved worship, I loved the Bible, but this deep desire to see people get saved, I can't really say it was there. The more I started reading and understanding what it meant for me to get saved, wow, Lord, I want everybody to have this. That's what I love about Matthew. Matthew starts to follow, and what happens is, he then says, I want everybody else to come follow. And what was the group that he got? Verse 15, tax collectors and sinners. Please note the repetition, tax collectors and sinners. Please note in verse 16, tax collectors and sinners. And one more time in 16, tax collectors and sinners. In a span of two verses, it is mentioned three times who were saved. Tax collectors and sinners. This was the bottom of the barrel people. Bottom of the barrel. 
I go to pastor's conferences, and I look across these crowds of the pastors that are there, and I can't help but thinking, good golly, we are weird. I mean, this is, we are, Christians can be weird. I think about it at my own church. Sometimes, not on Wednesdays, not you guys. No, 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 it's the Sunday. It's the Sunday people that are just, but you look out and it's like, this is what Corinthians said. God has not chosen the wise of the world. He's chosen the foolish. God has not chosen the honorable of the world. He's chosen the despised. He has. And I look at us in the spiritual mirror and I realize in 15 and 16, this is us. Tax collectors and sinners. There's a reason why Jesus was always hanging out with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. The Pharisees were too self-righteous. And you see this a lot today. And I'm not saying it in some rules, so don't take it and run with it. But you reach a point in society where you have a good income, you have health, you have a good wife, a good husband, you have a good house, you have a good job, you have a good everything. There's not this glaring hole of, I need something. Because you're perfectly content with everything you got. But then there's this segment of the population that does not have everything the world has to offer. And they stop and realize, I don't have, I need more. And they realize, the more is Christ. These tax collectors and sinners, they were a mess. They were open to the gospel. The Pharisees, though, nah, they had it all figured out. Never become so self-righteous that you forget how much you need Jesus. Isaiah makes it very clear. All of our works are like filthy rags. All of our works are like filthy rags. I read a commentator one time that was talking about the Hebrew of that word, filthy rags. And he says you can't teach that word enough properly. Because if you would actually teach what that word, filthy rags, it literally means in the Hebrew, it's embarrassingly disgusting what it's talking about. That's our works. On my best day, I'm still an unholy mess. Think about that. That's why Jesus loves these type of people. That's what he's saying in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician. If you're like the typical person, if you're having a healthy day, a healthy season, you're not thinking about calling your doctor. You're probably not thinking about your doctor. But as soon as you get sick, you want your doctor, you want the prescription, you want the medicine. See, Jesus is saying, is, listen, you self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, you don't believe you're sick, so therefore you don't think you need a physician or a doctor. He goes, but you know what? I came to call these people that are sick, that are willing to stop and listen and hear, I need the Lord. I need the Lord. Jesus is the physician, and we are all spiritually sick. We are sick, and we need the great physician. Just be careful that you don't look in the spiritual mirror of life and start thinking about how good you are. Because when you start doing that, we're getting into that borderline territory of I got it all figured out. There is something so absolutely redeeming of realizing, as we sang recently, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. This is what he does. And he just loves us. And he's then pointing us towards repentance. He's pointing us towards restoration. He's pointing us towards forgiveness. This is why when Jesus started out his ministry, his words were repent. Because he knows that I'm a messed up sinner and I need to go to the doctor and he's the doctor who takes care of it. And so I tell you, what a blessing it is to see these dinner meetings going on in verse 16 full of tax collectors and sinners that are so excited to meet Jesus Christ. And it goes back to our point that we said earlier. 
When God's doing something good, there's always going to be somebody mumbling and grumbling in the background. And so here he is. Jesus is going to these people that the world doesn't care about. And what are these self-righteous Pharisees doing in 16? How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Just be careful, folks. Just be careful that you never get yourself so elevated up that you forget the people that you're supposed to be representing Jesus Christ to. There's that great parable where the man is throwing the feast and he sends out invitations and no one wants to come. So he sends out his servants and he goes, go into the highways and the byways and just invite anybody that you see. I tell you, the gospel message is going out and some people are too good to hear it. They're too self-righteous to hear it. Jesus says, okay, I'll take the ones that realize they're a mess. Because those are the ones that their hearts are open and they're ready to see what Jesus Christ has to say. And those are the ones that we need to love. As we joke out here a lot, we all want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. A lot of times the upper middle class doesn't want to be saved. Sometimes you've got to go to those places that no one else wants to go and you get a chance to represent Christ to them. And I tell you what a blessing that is. Look at the example of Christ. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Boy, that's our mission field, folks. Let's go out and teach it. Let's go out and preach it. Let's go out and love them. And let's go call the sinners to repentance through Jesus Christ. Anybody got any final questions here before we close up in prayer? Mark. Not a question, but um, I think you're right. Jesus called his followers to follow him. And then he was led by the Spirit and purpose in his heart to go into the world sinners and reach out to them. And I think sometimes it's a danger that all of us can fall into the trap where we get caught up in church life. Where all we want to do is just hang out with Christians. You know, eat dinner with Christians. Hang out with Christians. The purpose of hanging out with Jesus is to go into the world and make other disciples out of all sinners. Right. There is, there is what I call a country club mentality that we can get as Christians where we have a tendency to encircle ourselves with that. And I think forget that, as you were saying, or the idea of going out. I just want to remind everybody, though, go out purposely. There needs a purposeful. That's one of the things that we pray before we leave the house, Lord. Give us purposeful conversations so that we may go out with a purpose. Because there's also a lot of Christians that go out and you can't tell them from the world. They talk like the world, they dress like the world, they act like the world, and they live the same life basically as the world. Uh, let's go out with a purposeful mindset to represent Jesus Christ. Now, there is the blessing of fellowship, of getting together and, and being one in the body of Christ. You know, one of my favorite verses comes out of Malachi, where it says right here, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. When we get together as believers, that's what I would love to have us do. Let's speak to one another about fearing God. Let's speak to one another about what God is doing in our lives as we talk about his name. You know, as I was setting up the tables and chairs for the meal tonight, I was just praying, thinking, Lord, I pray these conversations that happen tonight glorify you. You know, I'll come to sometimes come into the sanctuary and just think, Lord, I pray that as we're having this little fellowship break, that people are talking about you. Hey, look, I, I want to tell you what I read today. Look at what God's doing in my life. And just this book of remembrance. Let's just really talk about what the Lord is doing in our lives and give him the glory. And then encourage one another to say, hey, we all have friends paralyzed by sin. 
let's get this guy to Jesus. Because the only thing that matters is heaven and hell. As we've said out here many times before, I see a lot of churches that spend a lot of time and energy trying to grow their church. Grow their church, be it numerically, or grow their church prestige, or get their name out there. Man, let's learn from John the Baptist. Get the name of Jesus out there. That's all that matters. Churches are going to come and go. I have no idea what God has got for the future of Harvest Fellowship or anything like that. We're not trying to promote Harvest Fellowship. Let's promote Jesus Christ. And if we promote Jesus Christ, that's what we're supposed to be doing, and that's all that matters. You guys came on a Wednesday evening. A Wednesday evening, because I hope that you're here because you have a desire to see yourself go deeper in Christ and to see other people come to know the Lord. That's why we're taking time to equip you, to encourage you. Then, by golly, let's go out and do it. Let's go out and represent him in all that we say and all that we do. Any other final questions here before we close? All right. So, let's do this. Can you stand with me? You guys all probably know somebody who needs to get saved. You probably all know somebody who needs to go forward in their walk instead of backwards. Let's take some time right now and pray for these people paralyzed in sin. And I tell you, maybe tonight's the night to make a couple connections with people where you stop and you say, Hey, listen, we both got this guy or gal in our heart. Let's pick a day, let's pick a time where we're going to pray for this person. Let's take our paralyzed friends to Jesus Christ. If you are here tonight, just like Matthew, Jesus is saying it's time to follow me. You're here. That means, I would assume, that means you desire more. I don't know what you got in your life that you need to let go of. It's time to let go of it and say, Lord, I'm going full with you. And that's time to you go out and invite all your friends to go full with you. Please remember, everything in this world is going to melt and die and pass away. The only thing that lasts is eternity. Let's keep our heart, mind, and souls focused on that. Let's pray. Lord, as we just come to you now, Lord, reveal to us right now, speak to our hearts here through the Spirit, who is that, that paralyzed friend, that person that you're asking us to take to you? And we want to be faithful in prayer for. And as we're praying this right now, as you're bringing these names to people's minds, I pray they're just praying these names, Lord, and just saying, Lord, give us opportunities to represent you to them. I think of what it says in the book of Kings, incline their heart to follow you, to be obedient to you, to follow your commandments. I pray that you would just take some relationships tonight, some accountability where people walk out of this church service tonight saying, hey, we're going to pray for this person together, together to bring them to Jesus Christ. If there's someone here tonight that you're speaking to their heart saying, you're not following me completely. Reveal to them what they need to let go of. Reveal to them what they need to say no to, say yes to. And Lord, help us to do exactly what Matthew did. Bring our friends to you. And I just pray, Lord, that we could represent Jesus Christ purposely, represent you in every conversation and interaction that we have. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the fellowship meal tonight. Thank you for the godly conversations. I pray that we have safety as we travel home. And to you be the glory, Lord. Thank you for being a friend of sinners in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.